Hello, my name is Nicola Harkin and I'm IBEX Head of Employment Law Services. If you're listening to this podcast, you might be interested in IBEX Employment Law Conference to be held on the 20th of April in the new Royal Dublin Convention Centre. On the day, you will hear from IBEX experts on all the recent changes to employment law in Ireland. Things including statutory sick pay, probation, work-life balance, whistleblowing and more. So if you're interested in attending, please click on the link on the episode page and we look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to KC Connect, brought to you by IBEX Employer Relations Team. Across this series of short episodes, we will provide insight and expertise on some of the most common challenges for our members and discuss the case law shaping the employer relations landscape. My name is Pauline O'Hare, Senior Employment Law Manager in the Employment Law Services Team, and I am joined by my colleague Katrina McKeating, Employment Law Solicitor. For the next 10 minutes or so, we will discuss an employer's legal obligations in the first six months of the employment relationship. Good morning, Katrina. The European Union Transparent and Predictable Working Conditions Regulations, which we know were signed into law on the 16th of December 2022, will undoubtedly impact an employer's obligations within the first six months of the employment relationship. Could you give members an overview of the main amendments that employers need to be aware of arising from the regulations? The regulations make several amendments to the Terms of Employment Information Act, the most significant of which concern the written statements of employment that employees must receive within five days and one month of commencing employment, the time limits concerning the issuing of such statements and the communication of any changes to their terms, probationary periods, mandatory training and parallel employment. So firstly, looking at the amendments to the written statement, Katrina, what do employers need to be aware of when it comes to issuing employees with a statement of their terms and conditions? Is it still the case that the statement must be provided within two months of the commencement of employment? Previously, the written statement had to be issued within two months. However, since the 16th of December 2022, when the regulations were signed into law, the statement must now be provided within one month of commencement. The terms that must be included in the one-month statement are pay intervals, so whether the employee is paid weekly or monthly, for example, any terms or conditions relating to paid leave, so your annual leave, public holidays, but also any other form of paid leave that the company might provide, such as study leave, bereavement leave, etc. Any terms or conditions relating to sick leave, and bearing in mind that we now have statutory sick leave, so an employer should reference the fact that they either have their own company scheme or that the company pays statutory sick pay. They have to include any terms or conditions relating to pensions and pension schemes, the notice period that the employee is entitled to give and to receive, and details of any collective agreement that may apply to the employment. The regulations have introduced the following additional terms that must now also be included. Details of any training provided by the employer. In the case of a temporary agency worker, they must identify the end user. The identity of any social security institutions receiving contributions attached to the contract of employment and any protection relating to social security provided by the employer. And for employees whose work patterns are mostly or entirely unpredictable, the employer must also include the following information. Details of the reference hours and days within which the employee may be required to work, the number of guaranteed paid hours, remuneration for work performed in addition to those hours, and the minimum notice period before the start of a work assignment. 
Thank you, Katrina. So we know that in 2018, the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Act had amended the Terms of Employment Information Act to already require an employer to provide employees with a statement in writing containing five key terms within five days of commencing employment. So essentially a day five statements. And members will be aware that these terms included the, for example, the expected duration or date of expiry in the case of a temporary or fixed term contract and the number of hours that the employer reasonably expects the employee to work in a normal working day and a normal working week. So how has the regulations amended that day five requirement and what should a day five statement now look like? The regulations have expanded upon the key terms that must be included in the day five statement. So now there are actually 10 core terms which must be included. These are the full names of the employer and the employee, the address of the employer. If the contract is for a fixed term, as you said, it must include its expected duration, the rate or method of calculating the employee's remuneration and the pay reference period, and where the remuneration consists of basic pay and other component elements, so for example, shift premium, these must clearly be outlined. The number of hours the employer reasonably expects the employee to work in a normal working day and a normal working week. Where a probationary period applies, the employer must include its terms and its duration. The place of work, or where there is no main place of work, the employer must set out that the employee is employed at various places or is free to determine his or her place of work. The title, grade, nature or category of work for which the employee is employed, or a brief specification or description of the work. The date of commencement of the employee's contract of employment and any terms or conditions relating to hours of work, including overtime. And those final five terms, they are the new terms that were introduced by the regulations. So a question that members will have, Katrina, is what if a change is made to any of those particulars of the written statement or indeed the day five statement? How long does an employer have to notify the employee of that change? Previously, employers had one month to notify employees of the change, but under the new regulations, employers must notify employees of the change no later than on the day that the change takes place. In practice, it's likely that employers will notify employees in advance of any change taking place, but it is important that employers are aware of this new statutory deadline. That's great, Katrina. So looking now and maybe turning to probationary periods, and we know that one of the most significant changes brought about by the regulations is the manner in which employers can extend probationary periods. For employers, of course, probationary periods are a key contractual provision to ascertain not least whether the employee is a good fit for the role. What is the impact of the regulation on an employer's ability to not only have but to extend a period of probation? The regulations provide that the probationary period for private sector employees cannot be longer than six months and for public sector employees they cannot be longer than 12 months. However, they do allow for the extension of the probationary period for private sector employees where certain conditions are met. The extension must be on an exceptional basis, it must be in the interests of the employee and the extended probationary period cannot exceed 12 months in total. A question that will arise for members is how a probationary period should be managed, where, for example, an employee is absent due to illness, particularly where it's for an extensive period of time. So, for example, should an employee during the six-month probationary period be absent due to illness for an extended period of time, could an employer extend the employee's probation on an exceptional basis in the interests of the employee? 
My view is that whether the proposed extension meets the requirements of the regulations would need to be looked at on a case-by-case basis, looking at all the circumstances of each situation in determining the impact of the absence on the probationary period. Would you agree? Absolutely. The employer will need to examine the facts of each case and consider whether they believe the criteria have been met. So that is, is it an exceptional circumstance and is it in the best interest of the employee to extend the probation? No two cases will be the same. So the most important thing is that employers keep those criteria to the front of their minds when considering any possible extension of probation. And what if an employee is absent during the six-month probation on a period of statutory leave, for example, parental leave or parents' leave? Does this impact the duration of the probationary period? Yes. The regulations provide for the suspension of the probationary period in the case of absences on statutory protective leave, such as maternity leave, adoptive leave, parental leave, paternity leave, carers' leave, parents' leave and statutory sick leave. This is slightly different to an extension because where the probationary period is suspended, the clock stops and it doesn't resume again until the employee returns to work. So, for example, an employee may have commenced maternity leave in month two of a six-month probationary period and when they return to work after maternity leave, they will complete the remaining four months of the probationary period. The employer doesn't need to extend the probationary period because the employee is still deemed to be within the initial six-month probationary period. And Katrina, to meet business needs, employers often employ on a fixed term or specified purpose basis for a short period of time, whether that's six months or nine months or indeed 12 months, and are subject to a probationary period in the normal course. Do the regulations impact the probationary period of those employed under the 2003 fixed term workers legislation? And if so, how? Yes, there are two main areas in which the regulations impact probationary periods in fixed term contracts. Firstly, the probationary period has to be proportionate to the duration of the fixed term contract. So, for example, a six month fixed term contract could not have a six month probationary period because the entire contract would be spent on probation. However, in a two year fixed term contract, a six month probationary period might be proportionate. Secondly, where a fixed term contract is renewed for the same function or task, the new contract cannot contain another probationary clause. Thank you, Katrina. We know that the regulations limit the extent to which an employer can prohibit employees from taking up employment with another employer outside of their work schedule. Can you tell us what limitations have been imposed and how best an employer should manage this restriction within the employment contract? An employer cannot prohibit employees from taking up employment with another employer outside of their work schedule or subject the employee to adverse treatment for engaging in parallel employment. An employer can restrict parallel employment where the restriction, which is known as an incompatibility restriction, is proportionate and based on objective grounds. And this must be set out in writing, either in the employee's contract or in a separate written statement. It's common practice for employers to include exclusivity clauses in their contracts of employment, so it's worthwhile taking a look, a look at these clauses and considering whether they need to be revised in light of the new regulations. Katrina, it must be a case, though, that there are grounds upon which an employer would have a legitimate interest in restricting an employee from taking up parallel employment, not least to protect its own legitimate commercial interests. Do the regulations provide any exemptions that would take account of employers' interests? Yes, 
The regulation set out a non-exhaustive list of objective grounds on which an employer can base an incompatibility restriction. These include health and safety, the protection of business confidentiality, the avoidance of conflicts of interest, and compliance by the employer and employee with any statutory or regulatory obligations, among others. IBEC have an updated sample contract of employment available to members on our website that includes all of the provisions that must now be included under the new regulations. It also contains a sample exclusivity clause and probation clause. Of course, IBEC members can also contact the Knowledge Centre or your designated advisor to discuss any specific queries you may have. Thank you, Katrina. That concludes this episode. Thank you for listening. For more content like this, be sure to explore the audio hub on ibec.ie and follow ibec on Twitter.